I spent all my teenage years either on a diet or being encouraged to diet and not being active and sporty and thin was a problem. I went on the diet that led me to an eating disorder and I nearly lost all those things too as a result of my eating disorder. It was a real shock to the system and, um, and it led, I'd say, pretty quickly towards depression. Um, the depression eventually ended up leading to my, my um, diagnosis of anorexia. This is the Butterfly Podcast from your friends at Butterfly, your national voice for eating disorders and body image issues. I'm Sam Iken, and in this episode, we're going to find out the truth about diets. Now, we can't get around the fact that this is going to be a controversial issue. Diets and dieting are complex and often very personal issues. What works for one person won't necessarily work for another. When we refer to diets in this episode, we're largely looking at the eating patterns prescribed by the growing health and fitness industry. We're certainly not suggesting you ignore the advice of a doctor, for example. Like most kids in Australia, I grew up thinking that diets were just part of a healthy lifestyle. I can't really think of a time since my early teens when I haven't been on a diet, about to go on a diet, or having just come off a diet. Which is why it's so surprising to me when I'm speaking to experts who suggest that dieting is a bad idea. But that's what more and more dietitians are starting to say. In the eating disorder world, it's, it's fairly commonly accepted that eating disorders, when you look at risk factors, dieting is, is definitely right up there. And we know that dieting is a significant risk factor. When you prescribe weight loss to somebody or when you suggest that weight loss might be a good thing for somebody to strive for, what you're actually doing is committing them to a, a path that ends up with them being heavier than they started. For decades, our society's told us that we need to look a certain way. And if we don't look that way, we have to restrict what we eat and ramp up the exercise. It's a simple equation. You see calories in versus calories out. If it's not in deficit, you're eating too much. We're told it's that simple. And to get in deficit, you just need to go on a diet. But if it's so simple, why are obesity statistics continuing to rise and rise quickly? It's not like everyone hasn't heard that message. It's not a lack of education. It comes down to the simple fact that diets as we know them often don't work. And when it comes to eating disorders and body image issues, dieting is more likely to make the problem worse. And that can cause life-threatening problems. Insufficient energy intake, so not eating enough to satisfy your body's metabolic requirements, can trigger eating disorder cognitions in otherwise well people. And for some of those people, that will lead them down the rabbit hole of an eating disorder. Research tells us that when we go into a state of starvation, it can change your brain patterns and worsen a negative relationship with food. My relationship with, uh, professionally with eating disorders in my field really came about because of my lived experience as somebody with an eating disorder. I'm Fiona Willer. I'm an advanced accredited practicing dietitian and I'm also a fellow of the Higher Education Academy. So basically I'm a dietitian who is an academic now after years in private practice. And I had quite a common experience of training to be a dietitian many years ago now as part of my search to help myself. But I ended up helping myself in a way that I did not expect when I enrolled. Fiona is one of the country's leading dietitians. She has a long list of qualifications, including a PhD in nutrition and dietetics, 
and she's a director on the Board of Dietitians Australia. When we look at long-term studies and we do weight loss trials in the long term, I'm talking sort of two, five years plus, we then see the reality that actually sending somebody down the path of uh, intentional weight loss more often than not and far more often than not results in them ending up in that two to five year time frame at least being heavier than they were to start with even when they started that uh, weight loss plan. When you prescribe weight loss to somebody or when you suggest that weight loss might be a good thing for somebody to strive for, what you're actually doing is committing them to a, a path that ends up with them being heavier than they started. Apart from these um, statistical outliers who end up writing books about it. Traditionally, Australian society has been very unforgiving about obesity or being overweight. It's been one of the few appearance-based traits that's still fair game for ridicule or shaming anywhere from the playground to the workplace. Size discrimination is still rampant. And it tends to be justified because they say being fat is bad for you. And by not accepting it, society's encouraging affected people to do something about it. But why don't we have a look at how that's going for us? Data from the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare tells us that in 2018, 31% or roughly a third of Australian adults were considered obese. In 1995, it was 19% or just under a fifth. We've seen about a 34% increase in two decades. Surely that tells us that whatever approach we're using collectively isn't helping. Fortunately, though, things are beginning to change. Fiona Willer is a strong advocate of the weight-neutral approach, and I'll explain what that is in more detail shortly. But she's not alone. Dieting is, uh, in, in any form, from, from my perspective, is, is something that uh, should definitely be avoided. My name's Shane Jeffrey. I'm a dietitian based in Brisbane with River Oak Health. And we provide a, a private practice dedicated to the treatment of eating disorders, uh, eating, weight and body image concerns. And we also do quite a bit of work with disordered eating in athletes as well. Shane Jeffrey also advocates for what we call a weight neutral approach. By weight neutral, we're not ignoring the health advice that being overweight or obese has health risks. If we go back to the data from the Institute of Health and Welfare, more than 8% of disease in Australia is attributable to an increased BMI. A weight-neutral approach doesn't ignore these facts. It accepts them while also acknowledging that obsessing over weight rather than overall health usually makes the problem worse rather than better. Essentially, it incorporates human nature along with the cold hard facts. And when it comes to eating disorders and body image issues, weight-focused dieting is even more likely to exacerbate problems and even lead to life-threatening ones. In the eating disorder world, it's, it's fairly commonly accepted that eating disorders, when you look at risk factors, dieting is, is definitely right up there. And we know that dieting is a significant risk factor. And, and part of that is because most diets tend to structure food into this idea that there's good and bad or there's healthy and unhealthy. So once, once a diet gets concocted in whatever form it may be, it usually gets accompanied by a lot of dietary rules that people then need to feel a, a compulsion to, to follow in order to follow the diet because if they don't follow the diet, then that introduces a sense of guilt for a lot of people, negative feelings, and so the whole cycle tends to roll around. But does that mean that everybody who goes on a diet is at risk of developing an eating disorder? 
Well, the short answer is no, but that doesn't tell you the whole story. So there's a whole heap of genetic factors that are sort of rippling along underneath um, the surface of, of humans in terms of eating behaviour, and they're not sort of turned on to an eating disorder until there's insufficient um, energy intake in, in the mix. Humans have evolved to deal with insufficient food by changing their behaviour. This is why our brains work differently when we're in starvation mode. For prehistoric humans, it might have worked really well, but in the Western world, where food is rarely hard to come by, these inherited traits are the root cause of disordered eating patterns. We're not a bomb calorimeter. Like, a human body is actually quite complicated. You know, people don't recognise that when you don't put sufficient energy in, the energy out side of it, the amount of energy that we need to fuel the body, reduces. I mean, it's very, it's a very rational thing in human body because its whole existence is around surviving, right? You know, if there's not enough energy coming in, the body will assume that there isn't enough energy available in the environment to eat, whether or not you put yourself on the latest juice cleanse or whether there's literally not enough food to go around in your family. Either way, the body perceives that as a problematic situation and so it reduces the amount of energy it needs to, to continue to function. And this risk of eating disorders developing as well as we're literally saying you need to do these disordered behaviours because we think that your weight's more important than your mental health. And yes. then it's not really right. My primary school teacher asked me, you know, if you had a genie in a bottle, what would you wish for? And I'd wish to be skinny because I believed as, as a little girl that being skinny would bring me all the things that I saw in the movies, you know, like a career, friends, travel, a husband. Um, and ironically, you know, I had actually achieved all these things before I went on the diet that led me to an eating disorder. And I nearly lost all those things too as a result of my eating disorder. My name is Shireen Al-Masri and I'm a body inclusive personal trainer and certified intuitive eating counsellor. Watching Shireen's personal training sessions, the first thing you notice is that they're fun. She's more focused on personal well-being rather than weight loss, and her clients keep coming back because they enjoy themselves and they feel better. 90% of the uh, women I work to have had really and, and negative experiences with both gyms and personal trainers, either mm. with personal trainers like trying to weigh them or measure them or force dieting on them when they, they don't even want to lose weight or just, you know, made them feel really bad about their body or try to push unsustainable dieting on them. And, you know, that you know, gyms are just not very accommodating. You walk into a gym and a lot of the marketing is always just like thin, muscly, lean people. There's no diversity, like no body diversity. And people want to see real people. They want to see real bodies and they they're intimidated by that environment and they feel like they can't go there. One of the unique things that Shireen brings to her work is her lived experience. She knows the importance of understanding compassionate professional care, which she says can help people avoid the traps associated with diets and dieting. I was about 27 years old at the time and my counsellor said to me, you know, she's like, oh, I'm going to section you under the Mental Health Act. And I was like, oh, you can't do that. And she's like, yes, I can. Um, 
But me thinking, you know, I didn't know that was a thing. So that was kind of my turning point. And I threw myself into recovery and just learned everything that I could about health and well-being. And that's where I discovered intuitive eating and health at every size and this whole non-diet community. And when I got better, I just wanted to like help help others who have been through something similar, who just struggled a lot with dieting and body image. Quite a few of the people with the lived experience who we've spoken to on this podcast have related to my experience of the plate. In my mind, the plate is to the dietitian as the stethoscope is to a doctor. The plate is an actual plate, but it's much smaller than a regular dinner plate. And it has lines drawn on it to show you the recommended portion sizes for all the various food groups in the meal that I'm supposed to be eating three times a day. The thing is, it always seems to be less than half the size of a meal that you'd get at a restaurant or a cafe. And it didn't matter if I was training hard in sport or just working in an office job, I always needed to follow what was on the same sized plate. Well, I apologise for my entire profession. I'm very sorry yeah. about that. <laughs> but it, just, it's such a, like the, the ideals that were put across were so very out of touch and so very unrealistic. Yes, the intentions have always been good. I think I need to put that out there, no matter, um, unfortunately, how accidentally harmful things have ended up being, the intentions of dietitians have always been in the right place. It's just that we, as a profession, are in previous years certainly have been quite from a quite narrow kind of demographic of the community so not really representative of the populations that we serve that's changing which is great I'm trying to encourage that as well. People often ask us you know how much of this food should I be eating and our our first question or my first response back to them is often how much would you give another person and the the reason for this is is because I, I think what happens is for a lot of people who diet, they they sometimes carry two different frameworks around how eating is structured. So there, there might be the eating that's structured on their own belief systems and their intuitive eating, and then you've got eating which is constructed around dieting, which is usually constructed around rules. You've probably heard of intuitive eating before. It's essentially the process of developing a healthy relationship with food. It's a mindful approach that involves listening to our body and becoming aware of the cues that it gives you. Unfortunately, for many reasons, intuitive eating isn't something that comes intuitively. Most of us have to learn and practice before it becomes an instilled habit. One of the reasons we ask people what amount of food would you give another person is because we're trying to get them to engage in with that values part of their approach to food. So. You know, we might have, I don't know, say a, a mother who we're seeing as a client who might be feeding carbohydrates to her children on the premise that they need carbohydrates because they fuel the body and they need them for energy and they're growing. But she might avoid carbohydrates herself because she feels they're bad or because she's trying to lose weight. So you end up with this dichotomy of belief systems. And with that dichotomy, you then can start to open up a discussion around the discrepancies and where those ideas come from and what sort of um, approach would be more helpful moving forward in terms of the person's good relationship or positive relationship with food. One of the things they're up against is this massive industry which is so deeply ingrained in our society that intentionally manipulates and trades on our psycho-emotional insecurities. I feel like the vast majority of the 
air quotes, toxic diet culture, end air quotes, is Mm. just built on shaming people through advertising and through really cooked imagery in the media. It's just targeting people's biggest fears and shames and issues of, you know, self-esteem in order to make money off us all hating ourselves. Patrick Boyle has a long-lived experience with eating disorders. It started growing up being taunted as the fat kid at school. I was always a bigger kid uh, throughout my whole primary school, high school life, and somewhere along the line, probably puberty-ish, it switched gears from seeming like a normal thing to being something to be shamed about uh, or feel shame about. Um... Yeah, and basically I spent all my teenage years, most if not all, either on a diet or being encouraged to diet and play sports more despite the fact that sports made me feel bad about myself uh, and I was always uh, being made to feel as though I not being active and sporty and thin was uh, a problem. As a young adult, Pat became obsessed with eating and exercise and was diagnosed with an eating disorder. But it wasn't until a serious cycling accident that he started to pull himself out of the obsessive cycle. I got doored um, and broke my ankle. And um, just by way of spending a few months in bed and having a really great depressive episode for a year, I put on all this weight and then had to reckon with this fact of okay, you've spent the last 10, well, 15, 20 years, your whole life, you've linked your self-worth to your body. Let's figure out how to lose the weight in a sustainable way without it becoming uh, a full-blown eating disorder again. The way I perceived my body and my relationship to food and to fitness was all totally wrong and that not everyone feels this way about like dieting and you know punishing yourself and food should be something you feel guilty about that that wasn't actually normal patrick says he's now more interested in how exercise and food makes him feel rather than what the scales say or what size of clothes he's wearing but is that approach the right one for everyone there will certainly be health professionals out there who argue that weight loss is is a reasonable goal to have Um, But my thoughts are that if you improve, if you look at the broader picture, and and, and this is certainly our clinical experience as well as being supported by some of the literature, is that if you support people to have a lifestyle where they're moving in a way that they are able to sustain and enjoy and you've got them in a place where they've got a more positive relationship with food, where they're consuming food in in a way that supports health, then I often find that that's often enough for people. It's just that people don't really understand that that's an option for them because it's not often spoken about. Everything that I do is from a place of nourishment and joy rather than, you know, punishment. You know, you move in a way that it that works for you and we have a lot of fun with movement and, you know, it's a, it's okay to take rest days or not to exercise if you don't feel like it, not to do any exercise that you don't like. It's really about being in tune with your body and moving in a way that feels good to you compared to, you know, maybe when you go to 
a gym or to a class it you know they might be um shouting things at you things you know about calories burnt and fat blasting and toning and things like that like none of that that language is allowed in or I would ever use myself and I have a, a strict no policy talking about food or bodies in my classes as well but if weight is the primary target of intervention that becomes your main measure what weight is dependent on in the in the broader sense of things is intake and exercise like that's the most common equation but the thing is that as people focus on weight weight will move up and down nobody ever loses weight in a linear fashion really and so what happens is as weight moves up and down their intake and dieting becomes up and down as well so there's no stability there there's no structure so the eating pattern can become quite chaotic and we often see that in people who diet because they change their eating based on what their weight's doing layered among that is all of this social stuff about the value of a smaller body related to a larger body size um, and, you know, people trying to get ahead in their chosen career path. You know, people do have this quite accurate, unfortunately, sense that if I look the part, then they'll get the job and the looking the part stuff is all societal prejudice and we've got a lot of that around appearance in general and a lot of that around weight size, weight appearance. Before we wrap up this episode, I want to bring in one more guest. She was a little bit of a petrol head from a really young age and she got a taste for Formula One watching it with her dad and eventually decided she wanted to work as an engineer on a Formula One team. My name's Kate Reid. I'm the founder and co-owner of Loon Croissantery in Melbourne, Australia. And that job title gives away the fact that the Formula One career didn't work out quite as she hoped. I got there and... The, the perfect job that I dreamed about, the reality of it was nothing like that. Like, I think I'd planned out my whole life. Like I wanted to be the first female technical director of a Formula One team. And all of a sudden I kind of discovered that all of these things that, that I thought would make up the rest of my life weren't going to give me the fulfillment and satisfaction that, that I'd been looking for. It was a real shock to the system and, um, and it led, I'd say, pretty quickly towards depression. Um, the depression eventually ended up leading to my, my um, diagnosis of anorexia. Rather than being able to control those elements of pushing myself forward with my career, I just subconsciously turned this need for control to other things, which led to the anorexia. After five years of therapy working towards recovery with a team of professionals, Kate found herself on a very regimented diet, which she obsessed over. But once she found a job that she was actually passionate about, life became more about enjoyment. She was able to ditch the diet and, in time, ditch the eating disorder. I'd given up my engineering career. Like I didn't want to have a part of it. I was not interested anymore. And I was sort of starting to feel my way around like this... this real passion and interest for patisserie but I wasn't there yet either and therefore I had like long days ahead of me where the thing that gave me structure around my day was this very prescriptive diet that my dietitian had written for me but then when I started to progress more with Loon and build this business and suddenly I had this thing on my hands that I discovered that I loved and I was passionate about and I was excited and I saw a future for it and it started to consume those long hours in my day, running my business rather than worrying about following my prescriptive diet. And as soon as 
my day wasn't structured by the meals that I had to eat and it was structured by the jobs that I had to do and the, the recipe testing and going out and finding new customers and doing my branding and my accounting and everything. As soon as my mind was filled with all these other jobs that my business needed to move me on, suddenly my brain didn't have room to think about this really prescriptive diet. So how does Kate's story fit in with this episode? Well, she's someone who was able to switch from living a life obsessed with what sort of food she was going to eat and focus more on what makes her feel good. It's easier said than done, but thanks to people like Shane and Fiona, helpers out there. There are a whole heap of health providers that can support people to transition from a weight-centric mindset to a body-positive mindset, and that if people are interested in accessing that, um, Hayes Australia has a registry that has a whole heap of different types of health providers on there to, that can support you in this way. That's Hayes, spelled H-A-E-S, or health at any size. We have a diet industry that's bombarding us with unhealthy ideals and it's backed up by deeply entrenched cultural expectations. At this time of year, a lot of Australians are struggling with the diet that so many of us religiously start as a New Year's resolution. And we also know that most diets have failed by February. It can also be a very difficult time for people in the LGBTIQ plus community. Mardi Gras is coming up soon, and that's a perfect example of the normalisation of body shame and toxic diet culture in the gay male part of the queer community. Even in October of last year, you can hear people starting to talk about their Mardi Gras diets. It's January now while we're recording and people are literally posting this stuff online to their friends about getting cut for Mardi Gras, as in like getting your muscles in, getting shredded for Mardi Gras. Can't eat till Mardi Gras. The fitness part of my life is about mental health. It's not punishment. It's not related to dieting. It's just yeah. a thing that I do to feel good. If you've found yourself in a point where you're struggling with food and you think you might need a little bit of support, the best place to start is Butterfly. There's the National Helpline. The phone number is 1800 334673. Easy way to remember that, 1-800-ED-HOPE. If you don't like talking on the phone, that's fine. They get that as well. You can chat online at butterfly.org.au. The new chatbot kit is available online 24-7. And while you're on that website, you can check out all the recovery resources that they have, including some really useful tip sheets. All of these services are 100% free and 100% confidential. The Butterfly Podcast is an Icon Media production for Butterfly Foundation. I'm Sam Icon. I host, write, and produce it with the assistance of Camilla Beckett and Belinda Kerslake. Theme music is from Cody Martin with additional music from Breakmaster Cylinder. And special thanks to our guests, Shane Jeffrey, Fiona Willer, Shireen Al-Masri, Patrick Boyle, and Kate Reed. If you'd like to support the Butterfly Podcast, the best thing you can do is share it with someone who you think is going to get value from it. It's available wherever you get podcasts.